Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters Podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. <laughs> Philip. Sandy. You know how we used to laugh at my parents because they dressed alike often in complimentary pastel colors? Yeah, that was extreme, though. It was, but I have noticed today that we're both dressed in black, which is not that unusual. What might be unusual is that I have cheetah shoes on, cheetah pattern shoes, and you have Lion King socks. What do you think that means? Um, We've been married a long time. I'm not quite sure that Cheetah and Lion King are actually related, though, in any shape or form. I'm sure on the savannah there was a cheetah along with the lion. Uh, agreed. But we're actually not here to talk about animals today. We're and here. I'm wearing black because I, I have C-card gear. Where's your C-card gear? I didn't wear it today. Okay. I'll wear it on another day. Our guest has C-card gear on. True. <gasps> He's hiding it though. Well, it's a recovery walk shirt. It blends perfectly with his purple color and his. He's also hat. wearing the color of sobriety, purple. I know you always say that. It's I'm not sure I agree. It's true. Do your research. Good morning, John. Good morning. We have John Schwartz with us. Hi, John. Hi, Philip. And John always makes me smile anytime I see John. Does he make you smile? Yeah, there's like a, it's like a, just a bundle of energy coming at you. And he's about to explode with it all. It's <laughs> <he's, laughs> a fair assessment. <laughs> so, John, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, my name is John Schwartz, and I am currently uh, very, very sort of grateful and honored to be the manager of the Recovery Community Center in Willimantic, the Wind Recovery Community Center for CCAR. Uh, and it, it Coming to work for Zcar was like the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, I, I spent 30 years working in professional kitchens, so that's sort of my stock and trade. That's what sort of put my kids through school, and you know, and it's something that I love doing. And uh, and and I guess we'll talk later about how I fell into this because it's one of those completely non-coincidental things that happens to people in recovery. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I live in East Haddam. Uh, I have two amazing daughters. They're twins who were born in 94. Uh, I have the most amazing wife, uh, Eileen, who I absolutely adore. We've been married since uh, October 15th, 1989. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wait, wait, wait. Do you dress alike? No. Okay. They're not But we we wear the same size clothing in virtually every every (laughs) aspect. She actually, her shoes are the the same size as mine. She wears like nine and a half or something like that. But... uh, (laughs) But yeah, and again, one of those one of those remarkable things where I have no idea why she didn't leave, but I'm so grateful every day that she didn't, and I just love her more every day. That's beautiful, mm-hmm. Phil. Are you gonna gonna dig a little deeper than where John's at today? We always do that, mm-hmm. but we always want to start with little John. What was little John like? Well, it's kind of complicated. Um, so 
I grew up in this really sort of wealthy upper middle class. It's actually was sort of more than upper middle class uh, area on Long Island, on the north shore of Long Island. Where was that? Locust Valley. Wow. Yeah, Locust Valley. And, and actually, yeah. Well, later on, we we moved into a smaller hamlet called Matinicock that's within the greater Locust Valley area. But, but at any rate, um, you know, it was an interesting thing because it was a, ve- it was a very white Anglo-Saxon Protestant area. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the product of a non-practicing Jew and a uh, recovering Catholic. So it was a very odd thing because we had, no, we had no religion in our lives, yet I was saddled with having this Jewish last name, which just put me into all kinds of, like, scrapes with people. Like, I, I learned to fist fight when I was, like, the fifth grade, <laughs> you know? And, like, I'm not exactly what you call, you know, mm-hmm. imposing on any level. Um, Did you have brothers and sisters? I have two sisters. They're seven and eight years older than me, respectively. My oldest sister, Elise, just got her PhD. Wow. Convocation was last night. We're having a party tomorrow. We're driving down to Manhattan to celebrate. How fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She she is a remarkable person. Uh, She is one of my recovery heroes, absolutely. She's reinvented herself more times than anybody I know, and she's just an inspiration to me. Nice. So do both your parents work? My parents have both passed. Um, my dad was an attorney. Uh, he, uh, he worked first in Manhattan, and then he uh, had an office on Long Island. Uh, my mom didn't work. She worked briefly, but my mom was an alco- act- active alcoholic um, for like t- 24 years, from the time I was about 12 years old until she passed away at 63. She, she, she died two and a half years sober at 63 years old. Wow. So what was it like for you growing up? It was rough. Uh, you know, it, it was one of those things where situations were almost comp, uh, compounded by the fact that my dad was, he was pretty much absent because he was either working in the city or, or whatever he was doing. He was, he was, my dad was a sort of notorious womanizer. And so, so I was absolutely, because my, my sisters were so much older than me, I was absolutely smothered with love and affection when I was a, ch- a young child. Mm-hmm. You know, and then my, my dad had a failed campaign for state senate in like 1968 and that whole party circuit really amped up my mother's drinking. I remember as a, as a kid when my dad used to commute into New York by, on the train, the Long Island Railroad, that um, my mom would drive him to the train in the morning and then pick him up at night. And before she left to pick him up from the train at night, she would make a pitcher of martinis. <laughs> and the two of them, when, they, when he got home, it was like a five minute ride you know, there and back to the train station. And when they got back, they would consume this pitcher of martinis, and then the fighting would start. You know, that was pretty much a rock'em, sock'em robots, you know. So I had friends, I, I childhood friends who lived up the hill from me, and they could hear, over the air conditioner, they could hear my dad screaming, you know, because that was just his nature. Um, I should also add that somewhere in that period of time when I was six years old, I was bit in the eye, in the middle of my eye, by a Doberman. <gasps> and that, and that, um, that kept me out of, like, school, physical activity, sports, for years because I had a partial retinal detachment and uh, so that that was rough so early on like until I was five or six years old I was the most carefree gregarious well-loved child you could imagine and then all of a sudden like the rug was just pulled out from under me and I became like the primary caretaker for an alcoholic mother who was had a death wish. I mean, I was I was the one who was taking away the extra sets of car keys and pouring the vodka down the sink and lying to her friends on the phone and all that stuff. And you know, and then then listening to the, the fights at night and you know, you know, it, it, it was it was it was it was a very it was a very. I, so that's this is the first I heard of the Doberman thing. Mm-hmm. 
Do you remember that, or how did a Doberman get a hold of a five or six year old kid? It, it, it's funny, and and I, I've only started to started to give this any weight. Yeah. Uh, in my in my history, in my my emotional makeup, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm always wondering why am I always afraid of everything, <laughs> you yeah. know? And it's like, well, I mean, look at what I've just said over the last three minutes, and, <laughs> and I wonder I'm afraid of everything, right? <laughs> but no, so so I mean, what happened was my dad and I were playing. We had two dobes, two Dobermans. Uh, this was your. Dog. Yes, it was our dog. Uh, oh we, my! We gosh. had my, my my parents had had a Doberman that they had uh, Margaret, who they had bred, and we had like eight puppies. And one of the early, one of my earliest memories was being chased around the base of my house by these puppies, these, these Doberman puppies. Mm-hmm. Um, but but my dad and I were playing fetch with the dog on the sofa. The dog was sitting in between us, and my dad, you know how with a, with a tennis ball, how you fake like throwing the ball. So he faked throwing the ball, and the dog whipped its head around with its mouth open, and its canine just plunged right into the center of my eye. <gasps> it, was, it's a, it was a complete freak accident. You know what I mean? Uh, and the, the only thing I remember is I remember hearing my mom scream. I remember hearing them put a towel, giving me a towel, and putting it up to my face, and then taking it down at some point and just having it be scarlet. Like, that's, that's what I remember. And, and, of course, I'm like five or six years old. I think I was six years old, and my... Some friends, a friend of mine had gotten stitches, and it was like a huge thing, you know. And and I remember just all the way into the hospital and in the emergency room saying, "I don't want to get stitches. I don't want to get stitches. I don't want to get stitches." You know, and that was my main concern. Not that I was going to lose my eye or any of that stuff, right? And and then then remembering them telling me, "You know, you're going to feel this prick," and I was out cold. And next thing I know, I woke up. It was the next day, and and they and remember this is like. 1967 or something right. like this, right? So it wasn't like laser surgery available. Mm-hmm. This was like you know rusty butter knife kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and, and and so so the the guy who does the surgery comes in the next day, you know, and and, and he's just like, so how you feel? Whatever this that, and the other thing. And I said, did I have to get any stitches? He's like, yeah, about 110. You know, yeah. So my, my tear duct was destroyed. They had to completely rebuild it and all this other stuff. And and, and yeah, and over the years, I, I was like the one of the first guinea pig patients to have a, a laser cataract removed when I was like 15. I had to go to New York Eye and Ear and the, the, the laser took up a whole room. You know, now you can put one in your pocket. You know? mm-hmm. it, it was wacky. But, but every, time I saw a, every time I saw an, a, an ophthalmologist, they said to me, you know, whoever did this did a wonderful job. No kidding. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, re- it's really remarkable. And of course, the capacity of the human body to heal. Right? Can but you I, see from I can it? only see shape and color. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I've had over the years offers to have it corrected because they can actually now shine an eye chart back onto your retina and see what your, how your vision would be resolved. But the the way it laid out to me, in later years I was like the executive chef at the private club for the teaching faculty for Cornell Medical School. Mm-hmm. Right. And this guy who was a very highfalutin you know, eye surgeon was like, you know, I can totally fix this for you. And we were talking about it. He said, well, you know, the issue is that now because your right eye has become so dominant, your peripheral vision is all the way over here, so it might take a series of operations on the muscles of your eyes to like keep you from having double vision or terrible headaches. And I'm like, you know, I'm good. Like, I've, I've been living this way for a long time, and though it screws up my depth perception shooting basketball, I think I'm all right. You know? I'm good. Yeah. I can relate to the dog thing. I was, I think, 15 years old playing kickball in the backyard, and our neighbors had a German Shepherd, and we got along. But the, that whole ball thing, the, it got kicked near where he was tied up, and I went to grab it, and he just launched himself and buried his entire jaw in my thigh. Mm. And I was terrified of dogs, and I, even through my addiction, 
um, in my early 20s, I worked really hard to overcome that fear of dogs. And I, I have, but that was, that was traumatic for me, too. Wow. I never knew that story. See, that's why we do these podcasts together, Sandy. We learn about <laughs> each other. Out. <laughs> yeah, it was the German Shepherd, the Billadoos next door owned them, owned, owned them. And we went over afterwards, and they were like, he didn't really bite you, did he? And they, they said, pull your pants down, Philip. That was a little embarrassing. <laughs> you know, when you're a kid and have tidy whities on and all that kind of stuff, and showed the, you know, the where he bent, and they're like, oh, my gosh. You know, so... Um, but the, uh, they kept the dog now. If the, the dog ever did that, they'd have to put the dog down right away and all that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to see the dog go down either. Did it yeah, create the, a fear for you, John? It, it's hard to separate my fear of dogs from my fear <laughs> of everything else. I mean, I, 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 did, I, did, I did, beg my, did beg my mother or guilt my mother or whoever it was into getting me a dog when I was like 10 or 11. And, and that, that dog was my, my sole source of comfort during those really rough Mm-hmm. Well, I can't say my sole source because my, my sisters were always available to me. I just was very kind of shut down, so I didn't really talk about what was going on because I didn't really feel when like the need you... to inflict anybody else right. with what was going on. Well, when did you discover you were fearful? Or I mean, I don't, I don't. I've known you just since you've been at C Car and in recovery. I, I would have never guessed that you were fearful. It's because I'm an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like laughing on the outside, crying on the inside. Got it. I, 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 I've, I have had like, I when I when I was in when I was in intermediate school during all of this, I would have these terrible abdominal cramps, and it was all based on anxiety. I know this now. Yeah. You know, I would wind up in the nurse's office, and someone would have to come and fetch me, and I would go home or whatever it was, you know, and 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 then you know, I discovered better living through chemistry, and that was not an issue anymore. Right. You know. Not the class. No, no, I don't think I even went to chemistry class. I, I think I avoided that. I was think I was at the beach. I had the same thing with social anxiety, but I, so when I drank the first time, all that went away too. You know, that's the that's the catch with all alcohol and drugs is they work until they don't. The, until they don't, uh, they they do something for somebody. Otherwise, nobody would ever take them. Um, but when I drank, all of a sudden I was, I was who I thought I was meant to be. I didn't have the fear holding me back or weighing me down. I often wondered when my solution turned into a solvent and made everything disappear. Oh, you're so clever. I pride myself on my cleverness. <laughs> so when did you start turning to chemistry? About 12. Yeah. Yeah. What was it? Uh, Twelve. It was it was some leftover vodka that I was like gonna pitch that belonged to my mom, and for some reason, like just the addict behavior started. I squirreled a little away. I didn't throw it all out, you know. And I let it. I still remember the reek because I had it in my closet. And I was like, you know, I was, I was a kid. I had the closet in my room, and I still remember the reek of opening the closet door and be like, oh my god, it's god awful. And I decided I was gonna drink it, which made no sense, you know. This smells I terrible. Mean, Let's drink it. <laughs> well, how, well how, how much? How much of this is counterintuitive anyway? I mean, right. who? In their right mind, who had been who had experienced what I had experienced, would turn to alcohol as a source of comfort. I mean, it had destroyed my entire life, you know, already, and I hadn't even drank any of it yet, you mm-hmm. know. So, but go figure. I mean, it's it's yeah. welcome to welcome to the world of addiction. What kind of student were you in middle school, high school? 
Well, um, I'm the kind of person who I test incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Because, like, my mom was an English major, my dad was an attorney. I mean, I probably knew everything I needed to knew, know through the seventh grade by the time I was five. Mm-hmm. So that was never an issue, you know. Um, but as as I started to become, as my priorities started to shift, mm-hmm. uh, I spent less and less time in the school building and more and more time sort of. I grew up right on the other side of Long Island Sound. So we were, we, we were five minutes, or my high school was five minutes from the beach. Yeah. So I would take the bus to school and we would jump in somebody's car and go to the beach and get high all day. That's just what we did. So so my obviously my academic performance was was pretty much, it was A's and F's, right? So the things that I really liked, I excelled at. And the things that I had no interest in, I didn't go. <laughs> so that was it. My, 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 my best academic high school story is that during the in New York State, I grew up in New York State. There's this thing called the Regents Exam, and the Regents Exam counts for one fifth of your total grade for the academic year, and they, they give them in all the major subjects in the in, after the junior year of high school. And my my history class, I didn't go at all. Like during the entire sort of fourth marking period of the school year, like I, I just didn't go. It was an inconvenient time of day for me. <laughs> so so the word got out through the person who was the teacher of the class, Ms. Hilton. I still remember her name. Uh, through other people at the, in the school that I needed to show up for this Regents exam because it was like really, really important. You know, so I was like, all right, so I showed up for the Regents exam, high as a kite. You know, mm-hmm. at, that, at that point I was selling LSD, so like high as a kite. Uh, and uh, I took the Regents exam, I got a 98 on it, and, uh, and, the, and out, of, out of embarrassment, the instructor gave me an A for the fourth marking period so she could take credit for my grade. Wow. So, so I... I you know, I, 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 my story is avoiding consequences of like all this wacky stuff that I used to do. Right. Like the only, the only person, the only accountability I ever had was my dad. My parents split up when I was about thirteen, oh. uh, and and I obviously I went to live with my father because my mother was uh, uh, unreliable. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. You never knew what kind of situation she was. You were going to find yourself in when you were in her company. Um, and so he was, he was the source of accountability. The issue with him was that he didn't know how to handle it, you know, and neither did I. We were all, we were very new at this as a, as a group, like the two of us as a unit. Were you living in the city or? No, it was just still on Long Island. I remember that as, as a, as part of the divorce, they had to sell the house that I grew up in, which crushed me. Mm -hmm. And we moved into this, this crappy little apartment in a neighboring town. The guy upstairs was, uh, sold weed, you know, um, which was great for me, you know. Right. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't a great environment, you know. And 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 my my dad was now freer than he ever was to like you know chase women. So I was left to my own devices quite a lot. Well, I have a question. I love Long Island, and I love that you're on the beach. Talk to me about fishing. Did you ever fish? Oh yeah, we used to <laughs> surf cast. Sur- surf casting was our thing. My my dad and I used to do that together. We used to go out to Montauk uh, once a year uh, for a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, stayed bills in, and and we used to we used to surf cast. Did you do well? Oh, I caught this doormat fluke this one time. It right. must have taken me an hour and a half to get it in. No, because you know it flat. They flatten themselves out against the waves. You're pulling the whole ocean in. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was wacky. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, that that and some stripers and stuff like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was good. It was, you know, I, I learned how to clean fish and stuff. That, but that was early. Like once I got to be fifteen, sixteen, there wasn't a lot of that between us. It was more like it was very it became very hostile. I have to say about my dad. My my dad, he shamed me a lot. 
he called me a lot of names. He gave me, mm. you know, in the world of cognitive behavioral therapy, they call it a lot of dysfunctional assumptions, right? I had a lot of beliefs about who I was that had nothing to do with who I am. And it took me a long time to get through that because I'm not a worthless piece of garbage, and I know that today. Is that what he would call you? Oh, that and much worse. Um, but the thing was that whenever there was a real jackpot, he always rescued me. And he always told everybody else how much he loved me. But he couldn't tell me. Mm-hmm. I get that. I, I, as, a, as a parent, and you're a parent now, I can't even imagine uh, calling my child one of those things. Oh, it was it was it was ugly, and, and, and I mean, and, and once my dad got me out of a terrible jackpot where I should have done seven to fifteen years in prison, because he was an attorney and he knew everybody in you know, in the court system and whatnot. I I pretty much got a slap on the wrist contingent on the fact that I went to treatment, you know, and it was at that point when he discovered what I had been doing, he started using the J word. He started calling me a junkie, and he started doing it all the time, and he and even even married twenty years at the end of his life in the la- the last few months of his life, he made some remark. I was, I was going out to get some, some ice cream or something like that from his, his house, and he, and he made a remark to my wife, said, look, you know, junkies like sugar. Still, you know, you know, and this is like out to his house every weekend to try and take care of him, you know, sober like seven, eight years, you know, in this incredible stable marriage with these wonderful kids and all that stuff, and still, still just got to, you know, mm. got to twist it a little bit, you know. It was his nature. It was just his nature. You know, he, had a t- he had a terrible relationship with, with, uh, with women. He hated all women, starting with his mother, which is why he treated them so badly. You mm-hmm. know, it, it, it was a very complicated relationship. But on the other hand, he was one of the most intelligent people I ever knew. Was he, he a good attorney? Love. He was, he, well, <laughs> he was an incredibly self-centered person, let's put it that way. Yeah. So, so it affected his work. But he's a brilliant man, a brilliant mm-hmm. man. A beautiful mind, like incredible vocabulary, a brilliant writer. You know, mm-hmm. just, he had a lot. He had a lot of really good qualities, but he just he he didn't know how to navigate the field of human relationships. Wow. So did you stay with him through the end of high school? I stayed with him. Yeah, I. Um, in New York State, there's also a physical education requirement, and that was something that also was did not fit into my schedule. Um, so I was, I, I, I was made to, I didn't get to walk with the rest of my graduating class. I had to come back for a, another semester to like be the assistant flunky to like the gym teachers until I could like get the credits I needed to actually graduate from high school. So as soon as I finished that commitment, I, I, I bailed out. I bailed mm-hmm. out of Long Island. Yeah, I, I went to actually live with my grandfather who was in his early 80s in the Bronx on East 233rd Street and White Plains Road. Shout out to my Bronx people. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and what'd you do there? I got a job working at Bloomingdale's. No. On 59th Street and uh, what'd you do Lexington there? Avenue. I was the ice cream manufacturer for the Swenson's Ice Cream Parlor and all of the restaurants at Bloomingdale's. Wow. Well, it's, I started off scooping ice cream. Well, this, I started off, this is like entry level, starting off scooping ice cream in this ice cream parlor on right on, on 59th Street. And, uh, and the guy who was making the ice cream was just, I don't know if he was high or not very bright or what it was, but he would not follow the recipes. And he, he, made, he made a batch of mid-chip ice cream that looked like radium. <laughs> and and I, think, I think at that, at that point, they decided to get rid of that guy. And whoever it was that was managing the thing had no time to do it himself. And he's like, you're doing this. And I was like, okay. 
Okay. So so I just laughed about that, but I have no idea what radium looks like. Do you, Phil? Well, it's just it's the incredibly bright green, like no one would gotcha. ever go near, like to, in, as far as like a food product, you just be kind of like crossing the street to get away from the stuff, you know? Now, are you living with your dad's dad or your mom's My dad? My mom's dad. Mom's dad, yeah. okay. Dennis Francis O'Connor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> from Clonakilty and Quirk. Well, keep going. So you... You were making ice cream then, you know, just keep... I was making ice cream. I was playing in bands. I always played in bands. What did you, uh, you play? Know, I, what I, instrument did you play? I, I, well, I, I play a number of instruments. I, I play I play guitar. I play uh, all the brass instruments, so trumpet, trombone, mm-hmm. you know, not really tuba so much. I play. I play. A little, I play a little. I play a little woodwind. I could do. I could do a little clarinet, a little mm-hmm. this, that, and the other thing. Um, I play harmonica. So, what kind of bands were you playing in? Uh, they were. Mo- they were mostly rock bands. Some of them were kind of R and B ish. You know, mm-hmm. I was in a band very, very br- briefly with uh, Rick James. Rick James and Tina Marie. No way. Yeah, yeah. and that was a very, very drug induced period. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and and my and my substitutes became more and more intense because I became you know familiar with more and more things and had access to more and more things. Now, now when I was in high school, just to go back for a minute, because because of the geographic area that I lived in, I went to the public high school, but the public high school was like this repository for all the bad kids who got thrown out of the private schools. <laughs> so we had access to all the good drugs, right? You know, and and, and so you know every, we we had we, once a week everybody would kind of like go through and raid their parents' medicine cabinets, right? And we would get together at my house because my dad was always at work, you know. So this was the place to go, and and we we would take whatever we had, whatever we gleaned from the, this morning's take from everybody's medicine cabinets, and crush all the stuff up with a mortar and pestle and smoke it. How any of us survived that, I have no idea. I'm, I'm like in shock. Sometimes it would do absolutely nothing, and sometimes you'd like come out of it three days later. <laughs> it was seriously like, it, it was not smart. No, it's not. And it bubbled like burning plastic in the, in the bowl. So it was, yeah, that, sh- that should have been a, an indicator that it was not a bright move. But you did it anyway. And we called it Dr. Death. Uh, yeah. It's appropriate. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of what we were looking for, I think. And you're still here, so you're definitely a miracle. I'm fascinated with your New York scene. That must have evolved somewhere from making ice cream and playing in bands and doing drugs to what happened. Well, things got things got really ugly, right? So the 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 music scene thing led me to my first great love, which was speedballing. And, and what's a speedball? A speedball is a mixture of heroin and cocaine that's injected. Wow, um, the John Belushi fame. The, uh, the, the the cocaine keeps you awake long enough to enjoy the the heroin buzz, right? Right. Theoretically, right? Yeah. But it's, but it, but you know there there's there's definitely a lot of amateur pharmacology involved there. Right? You, you, <laughs> you, 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 you need to you need to get your mixture right. You know, it's like it's like it's like it's like a dra- it's like a drag it's like a drag racer. You know what I mean? If uh, if just... the mixture if the fuel mixture isn't right, things go horribly wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like I, I you know even even then like I, I I lost a couple of people that I knew. To overdose just because you know the the mix was off. Wow! You know? And in, in, the, in those days, you know there was Narcan was there was nothing like that. Mm. It was like in my my experience with having overdose in my in my in my world is like having a bag of ice down my pants and someone kicking me in the groin. I and mean, that that's how I came out of it. You know mm. something that that's that's that was the standard procedure back in the day for that kind of a thing. You know, but but that that just really that really. Um, it put me in places that I, I never anticipated going. I slept in the streets a few times. 
I remember waking up out of a nod, like on the on the stairs down to the bathroom at this place called the Pyramid Club on like Avenue A and like you know in the the single digits, and just not knowing how I got there or how to get out of there or any of that stuff. And it was like the door was like locked and I couldn't get out. And I was like stuck in this place at like you know six thirty in the morning. And I you know I remember going, meeting some people and going to some after thing somewhere and having to be at work at a certain time and, and waking up and calling and saying, listen, I'm running late, whatever, and looking out the window and realizing that I was in Newark. Wow. <laughs> and I had no idea how to get back there. You know, I did it again in, um, in the early 80s when I lived in Richfield for a little while. Um, that was one of my geographics. And, and I remember doing that and... and and calling, I, I was I was running this restaurant in Richfield and, and calling and saying, listen, I, I just woke up. I'll be there in a few minutes and looking out the window and, and realizing that I was in Hartford. <gasps> and like, I was not going to be there in a few minutes. Mm-mm. But I think, you know, the, but the blackout is sort of one of the hallmarks of my career. So, you know, it's, I, they're, they're big, huge snippets of time that I only have, like, snapshots of. You seem to get a lot of responsibility quickly from scooping ice cream to making the ice cream and now you just said you were running this restaurant well so so my so my first my my first geographic right to get away from all the stuff that was going on with me in when i was living in the bronx and there 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 are chapters within chapters there too i left the 233rd street place i got my own apartment on 181st street and creston avenue which is one block off of the grand concourse and uh, and and at the point where at some point, someone broke into the building and stole all the copper pipes out of the basement of the building, and that's when I knew it was time to leave. <laughs> wow! So, so I left. Mm-hmm. But that, but that location was very conducive to my other, the mm-hmm. rest of my lifestyle. Um, so my my other sister, and I haven't really mentioned my other sister who who lives in Burlington now, in Vermont. Um, she's also been a huge supporter of mine through my whole life, mm-hmm. um, and she's she's a, she's an ally. She doesn't she doesn't have the the same mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, but uh, but she at the time was working for Club Med uh, in their corporate office in New York, and and she this is got, starting to sound good to me. She got me a job working for Club Med, so I went to work uh, in the maintenance department at Club Med, and I was pretty much the hardware store guy. So I was in charge of keeping track of everything that they needed to run this enormous village with 300 guests on an out island in the Bahamas called Eleuthera. Mm-hmm. So so that so that was my job, um, and uh, I immediately found the people who. Like to, uh, I don't know. I like to call it defy gravity <laughs> the way I did, you know. And then I, I fell in with this guy George who ran the laundry across the, across the way from where I worked, and he used to drink. He drank the way I drank, like an absolute maniac. And of course, at Club Med, it's it's all about socializing with the guests and there's carafes of wine on the table at lunch and everybody goes up to the bar before lunch and has an espresso and you know pastis is big among the French, you know, pastis ricar. Ricard or Pernod, those things. And it's, it, those things, that's like 80, 90 proof. Mm-hmm. And take that. We used, to, we used to meet before before we would go up for lunch. We'd meet in the, the chief of maintenance's office, chef de matériel. And we would uh, and we would have our first pastis. And then we'd go up to the bar before we went up to lunch and have an espresso and a second pastis. And then drink wine through lunch while trying to impress the guests with our, you know, I don't know, worldliness and aplomb. And then and then go then go back to work sweating like a horse because it's 95 degrees. You've got espresso and booze running through your body. You know, it, 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 the whole thing was hilarious. I lived like for 10 months in a Speedo. 
I had a tan. I can't. I, can't. I had this tan, like, like you were this unbelievable the, tan. You were in the Bahamas doing this. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, not, not the Bronx. Yeah. No. Not at no. the corporate headquarters. <laughs> no. Not the Bronx. No, and and it was it was. I mean, honestly, I don't really remember a lot of the job, but it was it was clearly a lot of fun. <laughs> they, they used to have they used to have a, a show every night. The, the 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 GOs, the employees, would put on a show every night. So I used to I had my guitar down there and I would sing and whatnot, and mm-hmm. that was always fun. And you know, it was like that. And then I transferred to the uh, the ski club at Copper Mountain at Colorado. And um, hopefully you got out of the speedo for that. I did. I did. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and I and, and of course I have to say again for my sister. My sister like you know bought me all new clothing for the the whole thing whatever like that. She's incre- my sister is wonderful. Um, but I, I went there and of course I needed to be closer to the source of supply because just being in the maintenance department did not put me in the right place. So I went to work on the bar team, at, in the the Copper Mountain Club, which which put me that much closer to the source of supply. Yeah, you know, and I used to I used to often volunteer to work the nightclub because it meant I didn't have to get out of bed till noon, which is very important in my life because I was like at that point I was consuming like a fifth of Johnny Black a night, you know, with, without any without any trouble. And then you know it turned out that the guy who was the plumber at the club in, in Colorado was from from Kansas, and he used to get this just amazing cannabis like just amazing that would stick to your hand kind of a thing so so we were just we were just high all the time and, and he would have like people like these geez, I remember these two attorneys coming up from Florida and I was working the nightclub at the time and after the nightclub they, they had this they had this like this bag of cocaine like was it was like you know, it had to be at least an ounce of it and they're like let's go up to your room and we'll spend the rest of the night we go and the guy just threw everything off the desk in my room and laid out these giant like three foot long rails I mean it was it was just hedonistic madness <laughs> and how are you i mean it it sounds fun but and it, maybe you were having fun but how were you emotionally through all this oh that was all buried that was all that was buried i i, I spent a lot of time and money making sure that that stuff was never going to see the light of day your emotions and oh your yeah trauma oh yeah no, your... I, I think, look when i when i got clean the first time I couldn't even name my emotions. I didn't even know what they were. I knew that something was going on that was really icky, but I had no idea of like how to quali- classify them. You know. So it was just like you were almost in this autopilot mode that you would just keep doing what you were doing and do it for as long as you could. Well, it was what I believed that I needed to do. Oh. Right. If I didn't have that filter on, I couldn't go out there. Mm-hmm. I, that, that wasn't happening. That was not happening. No, I, I learned at a very early age that, like, like in order for me to function, that that, that I, uh, the world was too bright and too frightening for me, and and, and I, I needed to have this filter on in order to like, not be paralyzed by it. Yeah, the only thing that, the drugs that near the end of for my use, they just elevated my anxiety and fear. They stopped working mm-hmm. and did the exact opposite and became like, panic stricken almost at times, and especially around. Uh, cannabis or marijuana? Oh my God! Oh, I sir. And if I snor- <laughs> and if I snorted cocaine, I was, I was the guy that would literally just want to hide somewhere behind. So, it didn't work for me at all. And I, what did that happen to you too? At the very end, at the right. very. I mean, so I remember, I remember very plainly, right before I got arrested. Um, I, I was I was I was in the business of of selling 
relatively large quantities Where of, were of you? cocaine. I was back on Long Island. I got okay. fired. I got fired from the job. <laughs> I got fired from the job at Club Med for yeah. being an itinerant drunk because yeah. I was I was I was I was an itinerant drunk. Yeah. I, I couldn't. I, there's no argument for that. Uh, and when, when I came back to New York with my tail between my legs, um, my dad let me live at his house, and he got me a job. He was he was representing a guy. Do you remember when when Ronald Reagan fired all the air, tra- air traffic controllers? Mm-hmm. So yeah. so he was representing one of those guys, right, to try and get his job back. And it turned out that his brother was opening a, was an investor in this restaurant that was opening in Long Island oh, I City. Thought you were going to say I know, he became like, an air traffic controller. Please, not the air traffic controller. If I spent enough time at thirty thousand feet, I could probably tell a little something about it. But no, so I so I wound up I wound up getting I wound up getting this job at this place in, in Long Island City, and that's where I met my my professional mentor. Uh, and where I found a career path that would mm-hmm. that would keep me in good stead for the next like twenty plus years. Yeah, um, that was that was in eighty three. Um, the guy's name is Brendan Walsh. He's now the dean of culinary at the Culinary Institute of America. Mm-hmm. Best man at my wedding. Uh, wow. and he was one of those people who he infected me with the hunger for knowledge about all things having to do with food. Yeah, and and I've always been sort of a an eager person when it comes to learning stuff. Mm-hmm. So I try and collect as much information as I can and sort of become familiar with as many things as I can. And once I found out that there was more to learn than I could ever possibly know, <laughs> I was all over it. I, I was all over it, you know. And, and and I spent the next however long it was like doing all of that with, with a couple of brief stops, you know, a couple of brief hiatus, you know, in, in between. One of them was in jail. <laughs> and, and another one was, was when I became physically ill um, with digestive problems, and, and they told me that my problem was stress. You know, my problem was stress, and and so I, I I took a year off and went to work for the family business, which was a car dealership. Wow. Let's take a breath. <laughs> I, I mean, where are we in this story, Sandy? Do you have any idea? That's like, um, wow. So he moves into the restaurant industry. Right. And was the next stop. First round of treatment or jail? Yes, that was that was the next stop. The, the next stop after that was that, and I and I said I, I was I was encouraged by the law enforcement arm of the New York of the state of New York to, to go to treatment, um, and and I, I was I was given a very very light sentence for what I was you know what what I was actually caught doing and a and what what were you caught doing? Interstate trafficking, no, which which is a federal offense. Drugs, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's actually that's actually sort of an amusing story of how that all went down. I, I had a relationship with a guy in in Nederland, in Boulder, Colorado, who used to send me this amazing quality cocaine, and uh, and the way he used to send it to me was by air freight, and we, and he used to, he used to take a a stuffed animal and take one of the seams out and pull the stuffing out and put this giant bag of cocaine in there and sew it back up, and and I went to LaGuardia Airport to the freight terminal to pick up my weekly package. And and that the uh, the box had been damaged in shipping, and the shipping agent was insistent on opening the box to like make sure that the contents were okay. You know what I mean? And and he and he opened the thing up, and there was a stuffed giraffe in there, and its head was kind of like lolled to the side, and he's like, "What's going on here?" And like the seam came open, and next thing you know, yeah. And as the guy pulls the thing out of the box, the sweat is pouring off my hands, like pouring off my hands. You know? And like this is not going to end well, and it didn't, and it didn't. You know, and uh, and that's how and that and that's and that's how the universe intervened in my life and probably saved me for the first time. Mm-hmm. Wow. Giraffe, the long, wrong, wrong animal. 
wrong stuffed animal. It's my favorite land animal. It, it, you know, it, it was it was a foolhardy move anyway this, right. to, to use the, to use that means of, of distribution. But so I'm sure you were sweating for quite a while, and then you went, and that's when you got the light sentence, and you went away to treatment. And yes, at this at this at this Taj Mahalish type place in uh, in over near Albany mm-hmm. called Conifer Park. It was this, oh, this, yeah. this, it was an old like tuberculosis hospital or something yeah. like sanatorium. Absolutely, like just. Top notch, you know, mm-hmm. and and my my cousin who I had worked for in the car dealership, he reinstated my health insurance so that they would pay for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I, you know, I, I've led a charmed life. Right. I really have. It's just it's all on how you look at it. And right? did your dad and represent you? My dad fixed it. He didn't. There were. It never went to court. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 they, I, I was pushed, I was pushed into a correctional institution for a, a short period of time. I say a short period of time. Um, and, and the, the deal was the deal with, with the prosecuting attorney, the prosecutor's office was that if I were to, um, go to treatment directly from incarceration and then, um, remain compliant, right. For 24 months that my entire record would disappear. And it has. I mean, I have a pistol permit, mm-hmm. so you know, clearly nothing was found. And, um, but yeah, and, and and then and then I came back to I came back to New York. And when I came back, that's when I got the job working as the F and I guy at the at the at the the showroom for the dealership, which was on 155th Street in the Grand Concourse. And obviously, I got a car as a result because I was working for a car dealership, and I was commuting back and forth to my dad's house on Long Island. Um, and that and that was that was when I first got into twelve um, step recovery. Mm-hmm. At that point, because you know, in the in the in the treatment modality, that's pretty much you were bombarded with twelve step recovery, and if mm-hmm. that didn't work for you, well, you know, we don't really know what to tell you. What year was this? Do you know roughly? Eighty six. Okay, so I went to treatment of June of eighty six. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing I could say about that is that you know I didn't really embrace twelve step recovery at that point. Um, but but what happened was, as as you were leaving this program, they they had this ritual called the walk. And all the people in the unit, there was a, it was the unit of whatever. And I was like, and I was very upset because I was an elitist when I went into this place. And they, they were putting me in this alcoholism unit. And I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm a cokehead. You know what I mean? And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. It's, it's the same thing. You're changing seats at the same table. Go to this place. I'm like, I, I didn't have any control over it anyway. So and I remember compliance was a word that was stamped on my, on my brain very heavily. But this, but this ritual was all the, they would dim the lights and all the members, all the, the group that you had been staying with, living with for the last month, were sitting around the perimeter of the room and you would walk around the center of the room and tell your story. And it was the first time, it was the equivalent of the fifth step. So it was the first time that those things that I was going to take with me to the grave ever saw the light of day. Hmm. And, and the freedom that that gave me probably kept me clean for four years. Hmm. Because I was very much living around the outskirts of recovery. Um, I remember when I was living on Long Island still that I, you know, I, I, I made sure to hit all the sort of AA meetings in my area. Uh, and I, I took a guy, I, I asked a guy to be my sponsor and he was a complete hard ass. And he was like, he, he's like, well, you can't work in restaurants anymore because they're full of drugs and alcohol and you can't play in bands anymore because they're full of drugs and alcohol. And you have to go to these meetings on these days that I go to and all this stuff. I'm like, dude, this is not working for me. Like my, all of my self-esteem, whatever little I have is in what I do for a living. And the only thing that gives me joy is playing music. So how are you taking this away from me? Like, right. you know, and he's like, well, then we can't work together. I'm like, all right. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then, then I wound up, 
this is very interesting. The, the, the guy who I initially worked with, this guy Brendan Walsh, who I worked with at that place in Long Island City, years later when I got back from treatment and I, and I, was, I was in my first sort of round in recovery, he had moved to this great restaurant in Manhattan that he had opened and he was opening a cafe annex for it. And they were super short staffed and they're like, how are we ever going to man this place? And he goes, I'll call Johnny. You know, so so I get this phone call. I'm working in the Bronx. I get the phone call from this guy. He goes, dude, I really need your help, like, mm-hmm. this, getting this place open and get this thing running. And I'm like, you know, I'd do anything for this guy, you know. And so I, so, I, so I was doing the two jobs at that point. I was working, I was driving from Long Island up to the Bronx, working during the day, taking my car down, parking in Long Island City, taking the train into Manhattan, and, like, working at this cafe. And, and the first day that I go to work there, there's this just adorable woman working there who is just like absolutely no nonsense and it's just from jump just making fun of me and stuff. But they're so happy to see me when I get there because they've all been working like double shifts six, seven days a week, whatever. So I'm like the, the white knight coming in, you know, so they're all happy to see me. And and, and this this woman and I start to work together on a regular basis and, and, and I, I never let her go. Mm-hmm. You know, and I still haven't. And right. I hope I never do. Right. Um, so, so I mean, the, it's funny that that place that was this rarefied atmosphere. It, the restaurant was called Arizona Two Hundred Six, and it was such a rarefied atmosphere that I'm still close with most of the people who I worked with there. And that, and I worked there in like 1987, you know, eighty six, eighty seven. So, that, and that's that's pretty remarkable that that that, that we're all so close. That we're, it's really like a family. So let's jump a little bit to the recovery story the, the the full the last time you used and what recovery's been like and how you've maintained it okay so so i was i was clean i was clean and sober from 86 to 1990 right during that period of time i paid a psychologist a whole bunch of money and fed him all the right data to get permission to have the occasional cocktail, mm-hmm. right? And that was all I needed. I, I, I describe myself as the drag racer waiting for the lights to change, you know? Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and the, the scariest part of that whole thing is that I got away with it a couple of times, you know, which has reinforced my belief that I was cured and I could you know, sort of do whatever I wanted again. It, it didn't take very long before it was back to the way it was before. At that point, I was a connoisseur, you know, C-O-N-N-A-S-E-W-E-R, one who knows of the sewer. You know, oh. so, uh, so I, you know, I pinky out, you know, drinking expensive wine and all that stuff. Uh, and, um, and, and I got, to, I got to the point where this was a, a 19 year run that it was on. Right. So uh, through the, through the, through my wife's pregnancy, the birth of my children, our, our move to Connecticut, all that stuff. I was, I was active. Um, things clearly got, you know, worse and worse and worse as they do. Um, somehow. Since the only area of my life where I had any kind of self-worth left was in my professional life, I was always very sort of, I tried to be very buttoned up in my professional life, and I always had a good job, and I always made, you know, a good income and all that stuff, but I was dying on the inside. I was absolutely dying on the inside. You know, I, I, knew, I, was a, I knew I was a horrible parent. I knew I was a horrible husband. I knew that I wasn't doing anything to make the world any brighter on any given day. I was taking, I was sucking life out of the world and everyone around me, you know. Um, and I was working for this for this guy um, in Niantic, Leo Roche. God bless you, man. Um, and he uh, <laughs> he saw what was going on. He saw the way I was treating people, and, and he pulled me aside. On on but I I sent a, a particularly nasty text to the person who was the general manager of the restaurant when I was all cocked up, and he pulled me aside one day and he said, "Look, like you're one of the brightest and most talented people I've ever known, but, but in point of fact, like if you don't stop what you're doing." we can't go forward with this relationship. You know, the people who work for you, 
they, they tell me how brilliant you are and they can learn all the stuff from you, but they, they can't wait for you to leave. They can't stand you, man. You know, and I, that that broke my heart because like that was like my whole shtick was like being this incredibly knowledgeable, helpful teacher, you know, mentor in the professional kitchen because that's what I that's what I do. I mean, my family tree is like, you know, it's like Bill Parcells coaching tree. People who have worked for me do really good stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm very proud of that. Right. And, and And that was the only time I had been circling around the outskirts of recovery because I was getting in these continuous jackpots. I got fired from a job. I put myself into detox at Rushford for a few days so I could get a little sleep and a couple of good meals in me. Mm-hmm. I had no intention of cleaning up, you know what I mean? But but I, I was doing that. And, and, uh, and I'd been going to meetings locally, you know, Drunk, sober, drinking before, after, during, you know, you know, breaking down, sobbing at step meetings. You know, the whole, you've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it. That, mm-hmm. that guy who's like a complete mess. Uh, but when I had this conversation with this guy, Leo, um, that was when I decided I was going to actually stop using. And, and I got home, and I think, I think it was like early Sunday morning, like 1 a.m., woke poor Eileen up out of a dead sleep zone. Drinking everything in the house and I'm quitting. You know what I mean? And she's like, yeah, 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 and rolls over and goes back to sleep. Like she's heard this a thousand times, you know. And I did, and that's what I did. And 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 and, and it was ugly too. I mean, it was like a half a gallon of E and J Hardy Burgundy and sake and scotch and Xanax and you know, it was like. And I spent, I literally spent like the next seventy-two hours like on the floor of my bathroom. You know, just, just I mean, I should have been in a hospital. You know, but I decided that I wanted to listen to what my body had to say to me about how I've been treating it. Yeah, and 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 then that's and that's how it started, you know, and and I was very fortunate because I, you know, I. How long ago was that? That was that was like December fifth, two thousand nine. Yeah. Uh, my 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 official date is two is the seventh Pearl Harbor Day. Never get bombed again. <laughs> because I because my BAC was probably so high for those two days that I really didn't feel I could count it. No, so that's a dad joke. I didn't count it. Um, well, it's a, it's an AA dad joke. I guess. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I'd, I'd been fortunate because I, I'd been to enough meetings that, that I realized that there were people in recovery who had something that I really needed and that I needed to, like, just, like, stop thinking and just go there. <laughs> you know? It was, all, it was all very, like, primal caveman stuff. You go, AA, now, go. And I tried as best I could not to be the arrogant blowhard that was my persona. You know, and uh, it's funny because I tell this story whenever I, I'm, I'm asked to tell my story about how I, I, my home group is East Hampton, Saturday, Sunday night, back to basics. It's a big book meeting. We go through the whole book from the, from the front cover to the back cover. Mm-hmm. And, and there is this annoying guy who every week used to say, oh, a bunch of us are going on a retreat up to Immaculata Retreat House in Willoughby. And it was like, every week, you know what I mean? And, and finally, it, there was either like a really good football game or a snowstorm on this Sunday. And there's like five of us at the meeting, and he makes this announcement again. He looks me dead in the eye and goes, I guess I'm talking to you now. Because I was the only one at the table who wasn't going. <laughs> and I'm like, fine, like, fine. If it'll shut you up, I'll go, fine, you know. And, and that's where I met Rick. Mm-hmm. And, and that's also where I asked this annoying little guy to be my sponsor. And he's, and he's still my sponsor today, and he's like my best friend in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I just love him. And he, and he was the first person who, he's the one who, he and Thomas Merton gave me access to God. Yeah, and and without them, I, without them, I don't know where I'd be. Mm-hmm. You know, because it, basically, what it came down to was, I couldn't trust anyone or anything. I didn't believe that I could trust anyone or anything because my life, my history indicated that that would be a very unwise thing. 
-hmm. because the rug was constantly getting pulled out from under me in one way or another. But that was just the way I was looking at it. I didn't, I didn't recognize all the times when there were unseen hands in my life that, that kept me alive to get here, you know, because they were all over the place. But I just didn't see it. I just didn't see it, you know. But, but I was having this conversation with this guy, with Steve, and, and, and I was talking about my trust issues and, and my, my issues with, with the whole idea of, like, turning my will and my life over to anything, you know. And, and, and he said to me, plain as day, you can trust me, can't you? Mm-hmm. And I had, there was no argument for it. There was, there, I had me with my enormous intellect, you know, I had no way of combating that because there was no way I could not trust this guy. And that's when it all started to, that's when it all started, you know, the, the, what do they say? The scales fell from my eyes. That was, that was at the point when I realized that there was a loving God at work in my life mm. and it, it changed everything. It just changed everything for me. Mm-hmm. And then I started to read Merton and then that just, you know. So what's changed? In terms of um, your relationship, like in your family, your relationship with others, how you see yourself. Oh well, just little things like that. Well, <laughs> well I, yeah, that, that's that's a that's a lot of ground to cover. But but I mean, like I say, that you, my my wife, my wife has, has said to me early in recovery. You know, I was just waiting to see when the guy I fell in love with was going to come back. Oh, uh, you know, and uh, my my kids had mm-hmm. my kids my kids used to hide from me. You know, when I got home. Because, you know, you know, the bell curve of the drunk, right? You know, you can be anywhere from, like, happy-go-lucky, gregarious to playful to, like, you know, dark and sinister to, you know, to violent, to yeah. unconscious, suicidal. You know what I mean? So, so I could be anywhere on that bell curve when I came home. So as soon as my car pulled up, they would hightail it down to, their, down to their room and, like, you know, either pretend to do homework or actually do homework. I don't really know. And then I would come home and, you know, play what they used to call the drunken suicide music. I'd have, like, you know, Tom Waits blaring, like, you know, all these, you know, so. Um, oh but so it took them a little while. It took them a little while before they could trust me, and I don't blame them for that. Right. You know what I mean? But, but today, like, it's it's great. I mean, like, my kids both, they, they call me to check in on me and say hi to me. And they're, they know they're always welcome in our house, and they, they come to visit us. And, you know, I, it's wonderful. I mean, I love my kids. They're, they're amazing. They're amazing people. They're amazing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I you know and I, I I still struggle I still struggle with self esteem I still struggle with anxiety you know mm-hmm. because th- those things are you know, those imprints are very deep oh yeah you know, those neural grooves are very deep and sometimes I, I literally like I have a walking meditation path behind my house and and sometimes I have to go out there and and that, and and when I sometimes when I go out there it's it's about like almost literally picking up the photograph needle and moving it to a different spot yeah because yeah, I get caught in this repetitive thing that tells me things that are just patently false. Right. About who I am. Right. Yeah, so. Well, I know you to be a recovery coach, a masterful recovery coach. Well, thank you. And what you were saying about, um, you know, your first 12-step sponsor saying, this is the way you do it, dot, 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 treating you completely like an object. Um, tell me about how you got exposed to recovery coaching and how you first heard about CCAR and all that, because your story just always touches my heart and your perseverance and your willingness to learn. So my first exposure to CCAR was through Kenny and Donna. Yeah. Uh, They were the first ones who invited me to my first recovery walk celebration, which I think I went to in 2012, Mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Um, And then later... um, 
another person who I knew through the Rooms of Recovery, Jimmy Higgins, mm -hmm. he had just taken the job as, ma as the manager of the Harvard Recovery Community Center. He said to me, hey, you know, I'm opening on Tuesday nights as soon as my kid's Little League season is over or whatever, and I get really use of volunteers. And I was like, yeah, you know, Jimmy, you're my friend. I'll help you out. You know, mm -hmm. not having any idea that this was like the invitation of a lifetime, right? Mm. So, so I go, I go into, I go into volunteer, and like from the first second I stepped into this place, 198 Weatherfield Avenue, I've never felt so loved or valued. Like from the second I got, I met Virginia, and I was like, oh my god, I love this person. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to spend as much time next to her as I can, right? Because she was just, just effusive love coming off this person, right? Which mm -hmm. is just what I need. Mm -hmm. And and I start I start making these telephone recovery support calls. Oh my God, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. <laughs> I, 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 telephone recovery support it just owns my heart. Yeah. You know, and and uh, you know, I so I started I, I just two and a half hours a week I would go up and just make calls. After work, I was working at a pizza place in New London. I didn't know that the center in Willimantic even existed. <laughs> I drove right. right past it. <laughs> yeah. So I uh I would do this, and then, you know, I'd be like, oh, there's only X number of calls from Hartford. i clean those up. I'm like, I'm done. And he'd be like, no, you're not. And then he'd like, do Bridgeport. So I'm like, okay. You know what I'm saying? So I'd, and I, and I, and I developed all these relationships because I was calling all the same, you know, at the same time, same week, every mm -hmm. week. And I developed these relationships with these people, and it was great. It was, it was fantastic. And I was like, I couldn't wait to hear what, you know, whoever it was, had what Mark Brown had to say about how his mom was doing. I, right. I was like, you know what I mean? I, I, I live for that stuff, you know? <laughs> and so I'm going, I'm working, I'm doing what I'm doing. And, uh, and I get I get uh, an invitation to go to Recovery Coach Academy on mm -hmm. on scholarship, you know. And I went in September 2015. You were on the trail mm -hmm. when I went. In fact, in fact, I I didn't meet you until I came to work for CCAR. Right. And I'd been involved with CCAR for a few years yeah. before that. Mm -hmm. Um. And and I and, and it was Art. And uh, excuse me. <laughs> and, and, Jim, and Jim Higgins were facilitating it. And. Uh, Oh my God! I mean, it, it changed everything for me. It changed everything. John got really emotional because of Art. Because uh, Art Woodard is probably one of uh, the most amazing phenomena for me. Is that, um, and you know how close we were, yes, Art and I. And I that. do. And uh, when he passed, it's almost like his soul has expanded. That I can feel his energy in so many places in so many ways. It's just it's remarkable. I agree. I, don't I agree. Know how that happened. I I, I, I almost mystical. feel I almost feel like I'm closer to him now than I ever was. Yeah, it's mystical. In a yeah, way. and and you know that you know that Art took me on as as mm -hmm. a mentee. Yeah, and, and I used to I used to go up to his house and we used to just talk about anything. Yeah, anything and everything. And you know, mm -hmm. and, and as I, I've always, I've always said that I could listen to that man read the ingredients <laughs> of a cereal box and be changed by it. I mean, I mean, literally, he was just, he's just an amazing, right, amazing guy. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, so so that that training changed my life, and it changed mm -hmm. it changed the nature of all of my interpersonal relationships, which is exactly what it's designed to do. So good job. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but 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 I mean, it, it was it it, it changed the, the the way I work with people who I was working with in the program, mm -hmm. um, because I realized that you know it was it was a lot easier to find out what somebody wanted to do than to try and force them to do something they didn't want to do. <laughs> um, and you know, then I went I went back to went back to my, my working life, and I got this terrific job. Um, at Kathy's in Manchester, mm -hmm. uh, that I, I got to I get to work with like amazing people and great product, and you know, and I got to run the Northern Italian restaurant mm -hmm. in, in Kathy's, and 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 I just I just was really really enjoying that, and then because of the whole um, Recovery Coach Academy thing, I got onto the constant contact email list, and I got this email that said, Seeker is looking for a volunteer coordinator for our Wyndham Recovery Community Center." And I'm like, I have no idea why I'm doing this, but I'm applying for this job. 
you know, because there's always been something about this. I, I talk about the tuning fork. Like, I have this internal tuning fork. And when it rings, it resonates through my body, and that's the part of my nature that I know I can trust. And every time I've been involved with anything having to do with C-Car, that thing has been ringing, just ringing, you know? And when I saw that thing, it just started again. I'm like, you know what? I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm applying for this job. And I applied for the job, and I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. um, they hired Nate. Mm -hmm. And within a very short period of time, Nate was moved from the volunteer coordinator's office to the, volunteer, the, the center manager's office. And they posted the, the job again. And being an addict who just loves rejection, <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I'm applying for this job again. You know, mm -hmm. I'm applying for this job again because it, this, if, there's anything, if there's anything else in the world that I want to do besides what I'm doing now, it's this. Right? And, uh, and, for some, and for some reason, and, and Rebecca and I, she, she mentions this once in a while, that it's like, I think they're just about to circular file my second application, my, my second resume that I sent in. And she's like, you know what? Bring that guy back. And I should say about the the first interview, the first interview I had, um, and you, you see that I'm I'm an emotional person now that I'm sober. Mm -hmm. um, that that Deb Detter asked me about my own recovery, and I just started sobbing. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and Virginia, who was like a huge fan of mine, and really wanted me to get this job. I came downstairs because at that point they were doing the, the interviews mm -hmm. upstairs at Wellesley Avenue. I came downstairs. She's like, "How'd it go?" And I'm like, "Is it a bad thing if you cried or anything?" She's like, "Oh, John." <laughs> just like, which I thought was hilarious, but but I, I think the, the second the second time that I applied, I think Rebecca was like, you know what, bring that guy back in, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, thank God for that. Oh yeah, you know, and 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 yeah, somehow you know by hook or by crook, I wound up I wound up getting hired, and oh my God, it's like, it's absolutely the most rewarding thing I've ever done with my life. I, mm -hmm. I, just, I just love it every minute of it. I um, I think about Nate and. Uh, he really took to heart that idea. If you're not living in your purpose, I encourage you to live in your purpose. Mm. And and he's living in his purpose now, and yep. that gave you the opportunity to step up and be the manager. And I know many people that um, you have helped already. I can't even. It's countless. Some of them are employees now at CCAR too that you've helped coach, the same way you were coached to apply and do all that too. Uh -huh. What's your interaction been like with John as a... Yeah, I was just uh, thinking about that. So, you know, once I started working in the recovery field at University of Connecticut, you have, you have been right there. If I had a question, the email is responded to in a second. If I want to bring a student over to meet you, you make yourself available. You showed up at our campus cleanup. You're mm -hmm. just somebody you can count on. Um, and I really, really appreciate that. Well, thanks, and it's so odd to hear myself described in those terms, but I guess I'm just going to say thank you and be good with that. Well, she is a little upset with you because you picked up more garbage than she did at that cleanup. I I told you, I have, I have a strategy. I've developed a strategy where I look for the bottles that are filled with mud because they weigh five pounds a piece. This, this is the, this is the, you got, you know, I, I Mm -hmm. I always have an angle. What can right. I tell you? you know what I, mean? I, always, I always have an angle. Phil's making me mad. I was working that event at the table. I was not cleaning up. Oh. He's just mad because at the last Orca cleanup event, I found a bicycle, which weighed a lot. Yeah, I couldn't compete with that. You know, the older the bicycle, the more it weighs. <laughs> they weigh less and less as time goes on. Right. <laughs> uh, so now it seems like you've had a lot restored to you. Uh, your relationships seem genuine. 
you are emotional. Um, you are very much trusted here. I mean, I've always trusted you, and, and you have never even come remotely close to giving me a reason not to, <laughs> that you are just uh, an ideal ambassador for recovery, and I thank you for that. Um, how would you describe your role at CCAR now as a manager? You talked a little bit about the volunteer role, but what's life like at the center for you, and what do you enjoy about it? Well, it, it's interesting because you know, you know the the reason that I that I moved that I, that I took the decision to to apply for the manager's office, the manager's position was was based more on my community's reaction to losing Nathan than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, I am incredibly attached to that community, mm-hmm. you know, the recovery community in Boulder, Maine, and all the people, all the all the my community partners who just they do so much to help so many people in, in that area. It's it's really it's really very impressive. Um, that that even though I, I am not a fan of administrative tasks, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I and I, I try to keep my, my paperwork burdened down to the absolute minimum, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I knew that I was going to be taking some more of that on, um, but in the interest of the community, you know, I felt that it was important that I add that stability to the center, that people knew that if things were going to change, they weren't going to change that much, and that they knew that they could rely on me, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so that's what I did, and it turns out that I'm actually pretty good at the administrative stuff, mm-hmm. um, and because I, I, unbeknownst to me, of course, all those transferable skills from those decades of running <laughs> kitchens, so like that, I, I'm actually relatively good at it. Um, but the, the thing, the thing that that is the is the most important, the bright spot for me is just like seeing the lights come on and seeing people, seeing mm-hmm. the look of relief yeah. on someone's face when they say like, "Well, you know, I'm not going to any meetings." I'm like, "All right." You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like okay, okay. Yeah, fine. Well, what, what do you what do you want to do? You know, right. what, what, what would work for you? What what would what would it look like for you? Right. You know, if you could if you could like put this stuff down and go on. Like, what what would you need to help you get to that place? How can I help you with that? Mm-hmm. You know, and just just the, the the relief, the relief that comes over people's faces. You know, and the other the other the, the huge bright spot about my sort of career at, at CCAR that I can think of is when I had the opportunity to go into the um, Osborne CI to oh, do yeah. recovery coach training. Uh, that That is, that, mm-hmm. I mean, that is just an absolute joy. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm still in contact with so many of those guys. It's got a, 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 guy, a guy who I hope to be, um, who I hope is applying for an ED recovery coach job as we speak, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is, is, is just finishing up at a halfway house in Torrington, uh, in, uh, in Waterbury, moving to Torrington, and the the guy is just he's just awesome, you know. He he was the guy who he used to arrange. He had a they had a band up there. He he arranged the the concerts up there. He arranged the plays for Black History Month. He mentored nine guys when he was in there. He's been through the whole thirty hours of recovery coach training one and a half times, and he's just a wonderful guy. And mm-hmm. and, and it's my you know my goal in all this. And you said you know there are some people who I work with who have come to work for CCAR. It's mm-hmm. like it's enlightened self interest because. I want this organization to have the best possible quality people yeah. involved in helping other people. And if I see somebody who shows that, you know, who shows the, the prospect for that, you know, I, I'm all about just supporting them and, like, making sure that they have all the information, that they understand what my involvement with this organization has done for me. Right. And that they can have that, too. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so yeah, I mean, I, and I, I just love coaching. I just love working mm-hmm. with people. Yeah, you do. No doubt. You've actually called me a few times on telephone recovery support when I sign up. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> Set him straight, John. Set him straight. Do you have anything else you'd like to add 
John? Um, I, don't, I, I think the only thing I really, I really want to want to add is, is first of all how how incredibly easy it is to work for CCAR. Um, <laughs> and I don't mean that the job is easy, but I mean like the degree of encouragement and support that I receive like daily from everybody, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter who it is. You know, it's a family, a family of what, 50, what, six, seven? Mm-hmm. Now we are, yeah. Ever, you know what I mean? Like, the first staff meeting I ever went to, everybody was there and there were 18 people there. Yeah. It's, it's mind-boggling. But but that, I mean, that just makes it so easy. If anything ever comes up that I ever have any kind of a question about or an issue with or if I'm just struggling with something on a personal level with some transference I caught off of somebody or whatever it is, I can call anybody. You know, and, they're, and they're totally supportive of me. And the other thing is that, like, I never had a I never had a professional job, a professional position that I could just be myself. Mm. Mm. I didn't have to put on this. You know, Merton talks a lot about the real and the false self, and I had a very strong, you know, facade that I put up that presented myself as someone who is not entirely who I really am. And, and all I need to do now is just be myself. You know, be be my authentic self. And it's how liberating is that? Mm. You know, how liberating is that? You know. And then the other thing is just to just to, to tell everybody out there that like. Recovery is very real and it's very possible. It's just amazing, mm. you know, and like, and if you haven't thought about it before, give yourself a chance, man. Because it, it, if I had imagined everything that it would have that I could have gotten, everything that I would have gained out of like changing my life and coming into recovery, I would have sold myself so short, mm. so short. Because the things that I got are none of the things that I imagined I would get. It's the texture of life. It's the quality of relationships. Those are the things that are really important and that I, I never really paid attention to. And I've gotten all of that, like, just, it's just raining down on me, you mm-hmm. know? And, and it's, it's the most amazing thing. It's like, I, I, was, I was walking through life with blinders on, and there were, like, jewels and blessings at my feet the whole time, and now I actually see some of them. <laughs> and it's, it's just, it's a most remarkable experience. And it's, it's something that, it's something that no one should miss out on. That's a great way to end. I think so. Thank you, John. Uh, this is a wonderful podcast. I'm so appreciative. Thanks. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CCAR, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.